This is Work Perks Podcast, episode 20, with me, Brian McCammon. This week is part two of interviewing the co-authors of The Talent War. This week is George Randall. A little bit about George. He's an experienced veteran, coach, mentor, and hands-on leader known for selecting, building, and reorganizing teams to reach their full potential. George combines 20 years of Fortune 100 and Fortune 1000 global HR and talent acquisition experience, really enabling individuals, teams, and organizations to achieve consistent and impactful outcomes. George began his professional life by enlisting in the United States Army, and while serving in the Army, received his bachelor's degree from Missouri State University and a commission as an active duty Army officer through ROTC. His career assignments include the U.S. Army Berlin Brigade, U.S. CENTCOM, with deployments to Africa, Central America, and Guantanamo Bay. Over the course of his active duty time, he was privileged to serve in key leadership assignments, twice as a platoon leader, as the executive officer for the largest company in Berlin, and finally two years as a company commander at Fort Hood, Texas. Now, after his many successful leadership roles, George transitioned to the corporate world and experienced many of the same challenges veterans face today. Now, it was these challenges that really provided the inspiration for him to create the first junior military officer hiring program for a top five consulting firm. George later went on to create one of the largest and most successful veteran hiring programs for a global Fortune 50 firm. And in both instances, these programs resulted in the employer being ranked as a top 100 military-friendly employer. For the last 20 years, concurrently with his roles as a talent acquisition executive, George has trained and coached thousands of veterans on interviewing and career search skills. He continues today helping our veterans successfully bring forward those critical leadership, management, and program management skills that make them invaluable assets to every company they join. Good evening, George. Welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And I got to come behind Mike. I don't know how that worked out, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, if if I understand correctly, you stand taller than Mike, so I think he was playing some of that that height sort of game. You uh, know, he, I think so too. You know, he he's he's got bad hips. He can't wear cowboy boots anymore. It's 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 a whole ego thing with him. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Which is interesting given that the central tenement of of uh so much of what you guys do is, is humility, but it's you know it's that ego. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens from time to time, you know, but Mike is uh one thing about Mike is he's got he's got it's weird to have this big ego of confidence. It's the good side of ego. Right. But he never lets his ideas get in the way of a better idea. And he's brilliant to work with in that regard. And we operate under the best idea wins concept. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we wrote the book. Because you get two people like us writing a book, you'd think you're going to clash. And and we didn't. It was great. Well, I mean, the the big takeaway from listening to, uh, you know, listening to Mike and, and conversing with him is exactly what you said. He is very smart. Very on point, oh, yeah. great ideas. A uh, little bit of that element of wouldn't want to see you in a in a dark alley. Uh, you'd probably kick my. Oh, he's a lot butt. of that. He's <laughs> he's a lot of that. He is. We're both at the gym today, and I'm I'm grateful he's lost a little size because of his hip replacement. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm catching up, but. <laughs> now he's uh he is he's just a force of nature um and 
you know, all I can say is I'm glad he was on our side. No <laughs> kidding. Know? No kidding. He, he is, he's a good dude. He's a brother, uh, somebody I love dearly and somebody that I respect and admire as well. And it's, it's always good to be working with people that, that, you know, you admire and, and hold, um, that you can always learn something from. And that's Mike. Well, and, and that, that passion shows through, um, in, in some of the other interviews that the two of you have done that, that I've been lucky enough to listen into, uh, obviously to the book, uh, which is what we spent last episode talking and we're going to further dive into more this week. Um, uh, so with that, George, tell us how, yeah. how did you find your way, um, to working with Mike to EF Overwatch? Like where, where did all this start for you? Well, Mike has a bad joke about it, but we don't put it out on podcasts. <laughs> he's like, he's like, well, we met on Match.com. And I'm like, no, that's not exactly it. But um, so I, it, it goes back a little bit further. The abbreviated story is, is I was a fan of Extreme Ownership. Um, I had read the book, and it was interesting. I got a signed book by Leif Babbitt for my birthday because when they did a muster in Austin – he VRBO'd my house because I was working in New York City with a hedge fund. And my wife ran in and talked to him and to get me a book. And I moved to Austin and I heard Mike on his podcast. Mm-hmm. And he said he's got this thing EF Overwatch. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to connect with him on LinkedIn right away. And I sent him an email. And Mike was really in the infancy stages. And he reached out to me like within an hour. He's that fast on email, which it pairs up really well with me. He said, hey, let's meet for breakfast. And we meet for breakfast, and, and I'm not sure what it was. It's like, okay, you got this guy with 20 years of you know special operations and a lot of it's selection and assessment. You have me, 20 years in talent acquisition, plus my military career, and building veterans programs. It was it, it was a really serendipitous breakfast. And I think by the – I don't even know if it was that we made it through the end of the first breakfast. He goes, hey, maybe you ought to be advising us. And I said, sounds good. And off we went. Off we went. Uh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, you know, with you mentioned, you've had quite a bit of corporate experience. Walk us through at just kind of a high level some of your some of your stops, some of your roles um, that you sure. had. That you've had. Uh, so uh, it's interesting. I I was enlisted then an officer in the United States Army, and I was very fortunate to do two years of line company command, which is the max you can get. But when I got out, I wasn't going to be in leadership position. So I thought, well, you know what? I can take these skills that I've learned and be successful in corporate America. So I transitioned to a veteran firm. That's one of the things we talk about in the book that you don't know what you don't know. I get this big box retailer, stock options, all of this. I'm like, wow, I've made it. Get in the off, you know, the office first day, and it's like a gut punch. I mean, I, I, I hated it. But what was interesting is, is I knew it wasn't for me, but of a year and a half after getting promoted, I jumped into kind of the consulting world. And by an accident, uh, meaning a family circumstance, I had to relocate out of uh, D.C. back into Austin, Texas. And they said, the only job you can have is go be a resource manager, which is for a consulting firm is internal recruitment, moving people around from project to project. Then they said, hey, you got some leadership experience. And so in very short order, I went from being the single resource manager to managing recruiting, resource management, HR, then jumped to another consulting firm. And really where my break happened was um, a person who hired me into the consulting firm, Booz Allen Hamilton, had jumped to Hewlett Packard back when it was the months really, really big and it hadn't been split out. They said, you know, we need somebody who knows the services side. Well, I had been doing consulting services work in the federal space. And so I literally jumped into HP and it's really where things took off. Basically, they gave me the US and Canada. Mm-hmm. 
within a year, I'd gone from 30 to seven, or 33 recruiters to 107. By another three months later, they gave me the rest of the Americas. And then about 19, 20 months, maybe 24 months in, they said, hey, we want to do this because we realize we don't have one throat to choke for all of enterprise services. So I don't know if they thought highly of my abilities or they were punishing me. I wasn't entirely clear how it worked out, but I ended up managing all of enterprise services recruiting for the globe. So that's 125,000 person organization. My top year, I hired nearly 24,000 people. And so from there, I had the benefit of working with Tracy Keogh, who we name in the book. She was just uh, Caroline Atherton, uh, Mitch Schwartz. And then I got to work with uh, Tom Lokar and a lot of leaders on the services side. And I, I mean, it was just the education and opportunity of a lifetime. You know, and then from there, I uh, worked for another CHRO, went to a hedge fund for a short time and realized that kind of wasn't for me. Um, and then Forcepoint had called me when I went to the hedge fund. Um, I had already taken the job, but then when I decided to leave New York, I said, hey, are you guys still looking for a head of TA? And they're like, uh, funny, you should call. Yes, we are. But I was their fourth head of TA. They were burning through TA leads, talent acquisition leaders pretty quick. And then from there, met Mike. And that catches us. It's been a hell of a ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, not many people can, not many people have any sort of career path where they're able to have a single stop at that level, let alone to have all of the stops and to have yeah. you know, the, the great people that you have been lucky enough to, to work with. That is really incredible. Uh, you mentioned you hired about how many again in one of your peak years? Uh, it was 23,890, I think. You know, because we're not, we're not counting in... specifically. <laughs> oh, I knew my numbers. <clears throat> I knew my numbers. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that, that, HP helped teach me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while Meg Whitman and Tracy Kia were well above me, you know, I had Caroline Atherton, I had some uh, Gemma Johns, a couple really amazing leaders. And they, you know, with them and Meg and Tracy, they were very big on everybody being students of the business. Whatever your role was in that ecosystem, you really need to be a student of the business. And so I was into workforce planning. You know, I'd be looking at where we were putting new locations. What did the talent pool look like? How well could we do? How well could we compete? You know, running large scale contracts from I'm on this contract helping them do the proposal for a year for hiring that's going to go on for the next two. So in one location, literally, um, what I knew about talent acquisition literally exploded. And so at, at any given time, there were probably up to 400 recruiters or sourcers or admin people matrix to me at one point or another to hire that many people. And we were measuring the volume on a weekly basis. Like, could we stay over 325 people a week? I mean, that's what we were, we were measuring such un, unbelievable volume. That is, that is absolutely unbelievable volume. And I, I would be hard pressed, uh, but the listeners would too, to, to come across someone who's, who's been in a similar situation that has to come with its own unique challenges. Mm -hmm. um, what were some of the, the kind of the sticking points of that things that you guys struggled with or, or, so one of the big challenges that we realized early on, and I was fortunate how I grew the team, is that I made the case that you could, you're could you going to spend the money on talent acquisition one way or the other. So you might as well be building it in-house. Mm -hmm. Unless you plan to just cut loose a business department, you need to have recruiters embedded in the business. And I could, and you know, that's the thing about talent acquisition that I learned early on is that 
you're bringing people solutions to business problems. So you don't need to be talking about time to fill, candidate experience. That's your business to take care of. It's important. But to the business, it's a cost revenue equation. Mm -hmm. And so I was very, very successful at being able to present the business case and to build out my teams. I think some of the big challenges were is constantly telling the right story about how valuable talent acquisition was. Because generally, it's not that any hiring manager or VP or regional director doesn't know about talent acquisition. They've never been exposed to it. So part of your job as the TA leader is to explain the value of your position and what your recruiters can do. So that's always ongoing. Then when you have recruiters sitting in three regions and you have different countries, you have all the complex employment laws, you have the currency valuation, you know, the currency fluctuations, you have different benefits, different contracts, different notice periods, um, you know, a different way that you acquire talent in, in countries and in regions and different traditions. And so you have to get really, really smart, really, <laughs> really fast. And, you know, it's what Mike probably talked about. The ultimate culture that you want to build is decentralized command, mm-hmm. where you're really empowering people. And so there was no way for me to succeed in those kinds of volumes and that kind of environment over that span if I didn't put great leaders and empower them to make good decisions based on the conditions and the environment that they were in. That was a big challenge. Um, And then convincing certain countries that we weren't order takers. You're really a talent consultant. So, you know, that's, that's a a never ending journey. Um, But, you know, I think everybody, even though I've worked at scale and a lot of people haven't, you're thrown in the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. and you, you have to learn to swim. So there, there were all kinds of great accomplishments and there were, I had my fair share of, you can't unring that bell. That was spectacular. And I hope it didn't go out on email that I did that, but um, it was 25 to 30 years of learning in, in that short five, six year span with HP. And I was just blessed to work with some great bosses, great leaders and great team members. How were you, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, that, that I can you talk about in the book is, is that quality over quantity. And you've got a story, uh, one in which uh, at one of your, your companies, and I don't know if it's in mm-hmm. HP where you, you had to hire about 700. I won't, just, I won't, I won't <laughs> name it. I won't name it. And that's been a central, that's been a central theme through the book, so I'm not going to push you for it. Uh, but you, you yeah. hired about 700 people or so in nine months. In a situation like that, as well as at HP, how how were you guys able to keep your thumb on the quality piece as you were going through all that? Well, you know, everything you do in life is a balance. And, and that particular story was at HP. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that portion's now gone and the company's separated. So it is somewhat fair. And, and there's no real fault. It was that somebody had an idea to build within the company a a, the offering for cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had all of these ideas in their head of what the organization would look like. They brought in an executive. They built out all of this. And it was done in this really interesting silo that nobody thought to ask the question, <laughs> where do the people come from? <laughs> and so that's how I came late to it. And when I came late to it, I'm like, you want me to do What? And, you know, 
it's one of the things you kind of learn in the military that I really appreciated is there are going to be plenty of times in life you're, you're asked the impossible to do. Don't stand there bitching and whining about how impossible it is. Get busy figuring out how to solve it, and, and, and things will get better along the way, generally speaking. But keeping the – there was a certain trade-off where in order to stand up and meet the commitments that they had promised to certain clients, we had to have certain key people in places. So we always kept our eye on quality, but I can't say through and through that that was the leading factor that we went through. Um, so there were a lot of times where we had to let hiring managers on their own, where we were we were pushing people to them that were good quality, mm-hmm. but we couldn't keep our eye on the formal selection process. And you, you had an error at the very beginning where people, what's the old saying that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Yep. And so that original error, there was just, there was only so much catch up we were going to do at that time and, and quality. You know, I think we did a – nobody else would have done a better job. I'm very confident of that, but I'm sure that we we put speed uh, ahead of everything else. I mean, when you're tasked with that kind of explosive growth, I mean, it it only naturally makes sense. You know, as you you shared that story and and you elaborate more in the book, one of the things you do talk about uh, is that as companies grow, they, they do tend to shift to that kind of butts mm-hmm. and seat mentality, diluting the quality of their talent and their culture. And that was pulled from, from uh, pay, bottom of page 191 for those that are following along. Mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts around mergers and acquisitions and how some of that growth can start to have an impact mm-hmm. on, on the talent acquisition process. Well, when you do mergers and acquisitions, you know, it goes back to what we talk about a talent mindset. It, everything goes wrong if you don't have the talent mindset in place. So if you're doing mergers and acquisitions, and one of the things that you do is not only assess the product, service, the R&D, you know, customer support, what all, all the different departments you have, you assess that for what they're delivering, what they're doing, what they cost. But you have to take it a step further and look at the talent. Meaning if, okay, customer service or customer satisfaction is low on your support elements, that's generally a talent issue. You have to start the merger and acquisition from the talent perspective. Somebody has to assess the talent. And when you don't, you're playing catch up. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing catch up, you run into the old adage of you can't outrun the collateral cost of a bad hire. And so you, you start creating problems that you didn't need to. Um, you know, Mike and I talk about this, you know, when we go out on missions, if, if you don't plan ahead of it for all the contingencies, you know, you're going to suffer problems you wouldn't have normally suffered. So with mergers and acquisitions, when, when people start blending, you're, you're push, if the leadership doesn't have a talent mindset, you're pushing down objectives to scale to managers who unfortunately don't have generally the authority to push back and say, whoa, time out. I need some time to get the right people on the bus. You're just compounding the problem the further you go down. And, and as soon as you get down to that entry-level hiring manager, you're butt in seat. And that's how it happens. So you have to look at the financials. You have to look at the product. You have to look at the service, the sales, the sales motions, the go-to-market strategy, the marketing, and talent. And, you know, I think we were talking about it before the show. It's like how many of us have sat in a quarterly business review or, you know, a merger, an M&A, briefing and, and and it's nothing but lines and graphs and numbers and stuff like that and there's no 
discussion of talent. Well, okay. Yeah, if you wonder why sales are down, you got a talent problem. It's it's as we I'm just dumbfounded, right? As I as I spoke with Mike, as I read the book, as I speak with you, it's so eloquent, it's so simple, yet so challenging to implement. And and you shared something before we we started recording about actually I take that back. Uh, you shared something at the beginning when we started recording yeah. about uh, you know bringing people solutions to business problems. And you're right. It, oftentimes these companies are saying we need another product or another widget, and they're just not looking at the people. Uh, any thoughts on on just kind of in- <laughs> you've got a lot of yeah, thoughts on that? It, <laughs> yeah, it it drives me nuts. And but you know I want to talk about a maybe the the opposite is a great example of you know the benefit of working with Tracy Kia mm-hmm. is that she didn't come from HR. She was thrust into the position, and I think we have that in the call out in the book. And Harvard MBA, brilliant leader, and when she's you know, she had this great phrase, and I have plagiarized this as much as I can plagiarize it, but I give her due credit. You know, she was at a meeting, and somebody says, you know, Tracy, you know, I'm glad HR is at the table, and she says, HR is the table. And starting with that mindset, that really always kept me focused. But, oh, it, yeah, I, I have a million and one thoughts, and so I, sometimes I think my head's going to explode <laughs> when I think about, you know, why people think if sales are down, there's there's a challenge with marketing mm-hmm. or our go-to-market sales motions or were our sales ops. Those all may be true statements, but it's just that looking at the talent piece is an afterthought, and it shouldn't be. If you're a responsible business leader – it should be all of those things. When when I used to go out on a mission, Mike talks about it very well. When we go out on a mission, we're talking about the equipment. We're talking about the terrain. We're talking about the weather. We're talking about the intelligence. We're talking about the routing. We're talking about every possible thing we can talk about, and we're talking about the people every time. Do we have the right people to accomplish this mission? But for, in, in so many organizations, it's just left out, and it becomes something, oh, Let's turn to TA. I think we need a body over here. And this is what the body should look like with this many years of experience versus a success profile. So it's repeated over and over. Um, And as much as we talk about leaders, I think there's a great opportunity for HR and talent acquisition to be telling a better story about their value. And that's why my recruiters at the team that I built at Forcepoint you know, they're so good as they're in the business. They know as much about the business as many of the leaders they're supporting. Now, the delivery of sales, maybe the construction or the coding of the product, we know what a successful profile looks like. And so it's not just a leadership lacking the talent mindset, it's the talent acquisition HR presenting themselves with the talent solutions to those business problems, telling the story and articulating well the value they bring. One of the, the really interesting things, and again, it, it makes total sense when we think about it, yet doesn't seem to come across a lot in practice, is A players finding A players. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mike and I discussed a bit of this about, uh, what, you know, with his experience, how he was pulled off um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, really dove into the assessment and selection of fu- the future of special operations. Mm-hmm. Why don't we see more of, of corporate America pulling some of their A players off to go be that representation of, you know, their, their organizations? What are, why, why? 
Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a there's a couple reasons. Number one, it, lacking the talent mindset, not understanding how important people are, they think they can outsource or delegate away that authority, and that those people will be able to recognize what's needed. The second thing is is that there's a lot of people that talk about teamwork. There's not a lot of people that execute it very very well, or explain to the people, let's say sales organizations, it's usually the easiest. They're taught and they're measured on individual accomplishments. And that's what's incentivized. And so Mike and I know, well, individuals don't win, teams do. And so if you operate from that concept that teams win, when Mike had to pick people, when I had to pick people in the military, I want somebody that can cover my back that I can trust under the most difficult and challenging circumstances. Right. And in Mike's career, his circumstances far more challenging than anything I ever saw. But the but the thought process is still the same. So businesses are afraid, hey, if I take my top salesperson off to select other salespeople, well, that's time away from the client that's lost revenue. Instead of saying, hey, if I bring in another if I have an A player find another A player, I increase my revenue exponentially because now I have two instead of one. What I lost temporarily, I'm gaining back two or three X. And the same thing with your product development. If you're pulling some of your best engineers out that are developing your product, they know what they need on the team to push this product to, you know, through QA, quicker, better, more reliable, and who they can work with on the team, customer service, finance, legal, if you pull your A players, they will pick people that look like them that they can trust to deliver on their portion of the responsibility and that them selecting a person better than them is a good thing and not a challenge to their role. So expanding on that a bit, let's say, yeah. let's say I'm a salesperson. I mean, I've been a career salesperson mm-hmm. my whole life. Yeah. Uh, if you're running the organization, you say, we want to expand the salespeople. Brian's the A player. I'm giving myself a little kudos here. <laughs> do, you say, yeah. do you say, let's pull Brian off for three months, six months? Would you maybe look at saying, hey, what if we just took Brian off entirely and made him part of talent acquisition? Like, how, how, would, you, how would you formulate some of that? I, I think it, well, it's not a simple clear-cut answer mm-hmm. because it depends on your business it, it depends on what the rest of your makeup of your team is um, and what you're going to hire. It may be that, hey, you're going to hire 20 in the next year, and maybe all of those 20, you, Brian, have a view and a say on. You know, you're going to be one member that's in this team. Now, let's say you're selling a particular product, you pull an A player from engineering. They're not all, it's not like you're depleting your sales department. You have an A player from engineering, you have an A player from customer support, you have an A player from talent acquisition, and you have an A player from sales. So you're not pulling from one department. It's not this gargantuan loss, but it's also situationally dependent. We're not asking anybody to be stupid and forego, you know, million dollar deals <laughs> so that you can collect three. $2 million deals the following year. But you have to get those A players integrated in a way that makes sense, that incentivizes the A player and rewards the A player for bringing in even better talent, and then still allows them to do. But when you make hiring a priority and you tell your A players, hey, the only way we get better and grow your world and grow your income is by having you part of the hiring process, that's a pretty powerful mindset. It's one that I've really only seen implemented in my professional career in one place. 
to mm-hmm. varying degrees at a few others, but um, I, I'm, I'm with you on, on that. It's that that whole attitude that A players find A players, it makes sense, yet mm-hmm. doesn't seem to happen in execution. And it is, it is something of a, of a head-scratcher. Um, I just did a video about it, actually. Yeah. When we were talking, I said, you know, I've talked with hiring managers. A players select A players, B players select B mm-hmm. players, C players, whatever the cat drugged in. They don't care. They're wanting to get out <laughs> of the interview and say yes and not have to do this again. But when you get those A players you know, selecting your brand externally comes up. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, this was the content of the video is I said, you know, the thing that drives me nuts about hiring managers is I ask them, why are you hiring? They have a vacancy. They had somebody leave. They have budget. They have headcount, blah, blah, blah. Or I want to build this. Okay. And nowhere in that sentence does it say I'm building the best team possible. Then I say, you know, what are you hiring? And then they give me the list of objective requirements. An A player will not give me one objective requirement. He will tell me all the subjective traits that he wants to see in another human being to propel that team forward. Do you put a B player in there? Okay, I need five years of experience in this, three in this, two in this. I want to see this role, this competitor. All objective points of fact, Mm -hmm. but nothing to do with the attributes of success that that help their team win. And that's why you get A players down there. They will look at the attributes and not the experience. They're looking for the person that's going to grind, win in every situation and have the resiliency to overcome difficulties. And what's interesting even furthermore about that is it's hard. Getting into mm-hmm. those subjective, those character traits, that's hard. Yep. And and it's something Brutal. where when you are a B or a C player, because it's hard, it's likely not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is it is hard. And and Mike and I say nowhere nowhere in the book do we say do this and you'll get this. Special operations has become special for multitude of reasons, but one is that they had to become experts in potential based hiring. Mm-hmm. But additionally, the one thing that special operations does better than anybody else in the world when it comes to people is they have this constant feedback loop. Which, how do we get better? So we tell people in the book, yeah, do, you know, do these things, focus on these things, but make sure you have that feedback loop. I have arguably probably, you know, there's not a ton of people on the planet that have hired as many as I have. I have one of my peers who he's included hourly workers for this major hotel chain. He makes my numbers look small. He's frightening, but he's, <laughs> he's great. But even the best of us, we have to stay humble in the hiring process because even as good as I am having conducted, I don't even know the hundreds of thousands of interviews, I'm still going to miss something. I have to trust the process. But I also know that even if I do that feedback loop is going to correct that for me. And so it's really important that for people to understand special operations isn't perfect all the time. Mm -hmm. They're perfect more than anybody else, but they're never satisfied with that. They're always trying to find a way to get better. And that's what drives them to be not just special, but keep that specialness as the times, as the equipment, as the intelligence, as all the things around them change. They keep getting better at selecting the people. Not only do they keep getting better, uh, but there's there's a degree of imagination. And, and I, mm-hmm. I don't want this to come across in the wrong way, but it's it's imagining what are going to be 
the the challenges and and mm-hmm. the security threats and the needs that we're going to face in five years, ten years, yeah. fifteen years, and and so to a degree, there has to be some creativity. Uh, again, that's mm-hmm. I think that comes across kind of horribly, um, but there there has well, to be. Well, we were calling thinking. it effective intelligence. Uh-huh. They're looking for people that in in the time that they're selecting them. You know, effective intelligence is one of those attributes for solving problems where no book solution exists or no previous solution existed. Mm-hmm. The people that have that kind of creativity that you're talking about, and they also have you know the resiliency and drive to keep after it and to, to keep putting solutions against something to solve it. And you know, to your point about them having to evolve, you know, I was talking to some hiring managers. We did this keynote speech, and I said, I think we have 50, 60 people on the call. I said, can Anybody on Zoom, I can see them all. I said, raise your hand if you're in doing the same job you were hired to do. Zero hands came up. Zero. Even as the head of TA, my job description and what I was told to do or expected to do Mm -hmm. in the first 90 days, two years in, has dramatically changed. So if you think you're hiring for this job description, you're wrong. That job description is going to morph and change within the first six months and definitely within a year. So you have to consider the potential. You have to consider the attributes because the experience isn't going to be predictive of them being able to adapt to what comes their way. No. And and 2020 was a perfect example of that. <laughs> yes. Uh, of that. Uh, uh, what it's, it's VUCA, right? It's volatility. Uh, I'm going to butcher it. Un- Uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Thank you. Uh, and if you're not looking for that, you're, you're going to be dead in the water. It is really intriguing how how many companies are just like you said have have that butts and seats. Um, you know, as we start to near the the kind of the end of our conversation, which I personally yeah. wish could go on for a lot longer. Um, hey, we'll go do it. We'll go do it again some later <laughs> time too. Um, you know, I, I asked Mike this question. I asked him these last two questions, uh, and so I'm curious to get okay. your take as well. Um, as, as an HR professional or as an HR practitioner, someone who's trying to help that field, what would be your guidance or your, your suggestions for someone who is maybe mid-level, lower level of not any great authority who says, I just picked up this book. Uh, I loved it. Uh, how do I get my company on board with this? Well, outside of calling Mike and I, that, <laughs> that's always a good start. Um, I, you know, you got to put the plug in here, but Um, The first piece of advice I tell people that pick up that book is the first thing is be a student of the business Mm -hmm. that you're supporting. You, the things in the book to tell you what to look for, to screen for, and to build the process, those all are going to help you as an HR or TA professional, but they have to be implemented in the context of the business that you support. If you're not a student of the business, you know, there's nine attributes. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a certain degree of them or lack thereof, actually, if you're not screening <laughs> well. But drive may not be something that you want in your customer support section. Maybe effective intelligence problem solving for your clients for those million dollar deals you've sold. So maybe you're, so if you know how to evaluate all of these, it's important you understand the business context of what you're supporting. That's how you get to be, matter of fact, let me put it a different way. I've had so many recruiters come to me and they say, okay, hey, George, you know, you've been a great leader. We love you, but tell us what success looks like for a recruiter, a talent acquisition consultant, a talent consultant. I said, the definition of success is 
if I go to move you from the hiring managers you support, that there's some VP that's going to come after me with a blowtorch, pitchfork, or <laughs> firearm for moving you. It's the most graphic way I could explain it, that when you're absolutely invaluable to the business, but that takes understanding their business, you become an expert in talent with the book, but become an expert in the business that you support because that's the, that's the real value to propel. HR is the gateway mm-hmm. for every revenue-producing function in the company. And the better you are at selecting the talent, you're only going to get better when you know the business you support. It is a great reminder that without people, we business doesn't exist. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in in various interviews and podcasts that that Mike and you have been on, in the book, you talk about this. uh, The tools, the gadgets, all of that—they're just that. They're there to augment the people, and without the people, you got nothing. It's exactly, and you know, I constantly have, and on any given day, no kidding, ten vendors tell me they can select talent better or they have a new AI solution, or they have a new CRM, or they have a new applicant tracking system. And I'm like, you know, even with the worst applicant tracking system, the worst client relation, you know, CRM, the, any of the tools, they could be the worst. But if you've got great people, everything else will work itself mm-hmm. out. And, you know, it's, You know, and you asked me for the other piece of advice for the leaders out there. Um, You know, the quote that Mike told you that we stumbled upon um, was, you have to be treating your human capital with the same rigor, discipline, and focus that you treat your financial capital. You do that, and you're on the way to winning. Absolutely. And and that's the central tenement of the book, right? The 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 war on talent, the talent war backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a never ending and the companies that recognize talent is the way will be the ones that thrive and succeed in the future. Uh, yep. and yet still so many still struggle. <laughs> okay. Last question, last question yes. of the evening. Uh, so in the spirit of the work perks podcast, since part of what we talk about is mm-hmm. perks, we've just spent last week and this week discussing the, uh, the critical nature and the importance of uh, the talent mindset, why that is a huge perk that needs to be implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll shift a bit and we'll say, George, if money, time, and administration is no object, none of that, what would be something okay. that you would put into place uh, at, uh, at EF Overwatch? It could be, it could oh, be well, anything. Oh, well, the funny thing is, is all of our ideas we go do. All of the ideas we go do it, but I will give you, you know, one of the things that, that Mike implemented was we teach that to other companies, how to build elite teams mm-hmm. and treat their human capital with the same rigor, discipline and focus. But one of the things that we teach and we live and breathe here at EF Overwatch, the talent war group is that it's about investing in people. And so if you're looking for the best work perk or the something for your candidates, it has to be something that's an investment in them. Yeah, cafeterias are great, wine bars, all of that. But what are you doing to invest in those people? What leadership training do they have to fill out 15 forms on, on your internet to get a certification course that they want to do that would make them better? Invest in your people. People don't care how much you know until they know how much mm-hmm. you care. And I know that that's not a very military statement. I get that. 
But Mike and I care deeply about our soldiers, and we were always investing our time and energy and money in training because you professionals train until they can't get it wrong. And so invest in your the people that you lead and the people that are in your company. It's the best perk. Find out how you could invest in them, what's important to them, and give it to them. And don't put anything on their head other than to grow, learn, and be a better version of themselves. Because they will, when they see you doing that, they will bring that back to you threefold. I'd argue that it's probably more than threefold. Probably um. <laughs> so. That was the first number came to my head. The reason is, is that when my wife sends me to the store, I'm only allowed to remember three things. If I get over three, I have to write it down. That's the rule. <laughs> if it makes you feel any Married better, life. I write it down and I still get my shopping list wrong and my wife reminds me all the time. So my wife texts it to me and, and has me go through the store. But invariably, <laughs> I'm in the checkout line and there's a new text coming through. Oh, don't remember, don't forget about that. I'm like, oh. <laughs> yes, dear. Oh, been there. Happy, happy wife, yep. happy life. Happy life. Yes. Amen. Well, and, and that's your your explanation on the investment in people. Um, that is exactly the kind of thinking and the ideas that uh, you know, I hope to elicit when I ask people that question. And, and there's certain times where like stuff is fun, um, but all of that stuff will never make up for that caring and that investment in your people. And everything that that Mike and you discuss in the book, uh, the way that you interact with your teams, it, it shows. It shows that you guys have a Thanks. huge investment in your people. Um, the experiences that I've had with the team at EF Overwatch as we were getting ready to set this up has been outstanding. Um, oh, thank you. And it's, it's been They're a good group of people. Mike and I tried to – I do want to tell you a real quick funny story. Please do. The, the best thing that I could give to my TA – because everybody looks at me and they go, oh, you're a VP. Now you're a managing partner. You did this. So many people ask me how I did it. And the best thing that I can give them is the time. What did I do wrong? What did I do right? What can they look at me and say, okay, I'm going to do it differently, or no, I'm going to do it the same way. The best thing is time. But I remember I came in and I was telling my team across the globe, best thing I can give you is my time. You can IM me, Microsoft Teams, however you want to get in touch with me. If I'm in a meeting, I will get to it as soon as I'm done. So, you know, I've got Skype, IM up, I've got Microsoft Teams, and I have a recruiter that's you know, in London, I'm like, Hey, how are you doing? No response. No response. About 10 minutes later, another IM comes up and it's the manager. What'd they do? What'd they do? Why, why do you want to talk to the recruiter? I said, well, they're on the team and I haven't had a chance to talk to them. I was hoping to get to know them and hope they get to know me. Is that all? I'm like, <laughs> well, yeah, I was, I had some free time and they're doing a wonderful job. I just wanted to see if they could zoom for a minute. And they're like, are you sure that's it? I'm like, I promise if I, I am somebody, I just want to see how they're doing. And, and I want to give of my time. And it was a foreign concept to the team when I walked in, foreign concept. And, and that tells you a lot about companies that, you know, if an SVP IMs me, hey, how are you doing? They probably want to know how I'm doing. I don't start panicking. And the leaders that have invested in me, I've tried to pay them the ultimate respect by paying that forward and investing in the people that I've been privileged to work with and lead. And, and that is, you've done exactly that by both Mike and you, by authoring this book, by sharing your time uh, with not only myself, but, uh, but the listeners. And I sincerely hope 
that we have the opportunity to have further discussions because there are so yes. many things that I want to ask that we can't fit into just one hour and we may need more, uh, you know, more than just a bottle of water to have some of those discussions. But in the interest of time, I think we'll end it here. So George, I want to say thanks so much for, Thank you. Um, you know, for, for sharing that time, that expertise with us and telling us more about uh, the talent war uh, which again, there'll be details on how to purchase that in uh, in the links, in the comments, uh, as well as where the podcast is hosted. So again, thanks so much, George. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. I enjoyed it immensely. And we'll get into the real funny stories on our next next chance at it. Love it. I hope you enjoyed the interview with George. It's been an incredible privilege to speak to both Mike and George, uh, not only about their experiences in the service, uh, their experiences writing this book, um, but learning from them in a, in a professional setting. I think the best way to sum up the conversations over the last two weeks is with this paragraph, the last paragraph of the book. The special operations community is one of the world's most effective talent magnets. In this book, we've guided you through special operations principles on talent acquisition and development that you can apply to your business. Now it's time to turn your words into action. It's time to lead. Identify the talent you want, attract it, select it, and cultivate it. That's how great organizations win on talent. And when you win on talent, you get the people and leaders you need to win the war. Talent wins. Again, I can't say enough about this book. It is incredibly insightful, full of very valuable, very practical things that any organization can implement uh, to make them, you know, a huge talent magnet. And that in and of itself is one of the most dynamic work perks you can possibly have. So go pick up the copy of the book. We have direct links in the show notes. You can find it on Amazon. Again, The Talent War by Mike Sorelli and George Randall. As always, thanks for your time and attention. Hope you enjoyed the conversations. We will see you again next week.